All set for your flight? Yep, I've got everything I need. Eye mask, neck pillow, T-Mobile, headphones. Wait, T-Mobile? You bet. Free in-flight Wi-Fi. 15% off all Hilton brands. I never go anywhere without T-Mobile. Same goes from a water bottle, chewing gum, nail clippers, okay, passport. Okay, I'm gonna leave you to it. Find out how you can experience travel better at T-Mobile.com slash travel. Qualifying plan required. Wi-Fi were available on select U.S. airlines. Deposit and Hilton Honors membership required for 15% discount. Terms and conditions apply. A science story, huh? And I just thought, well, I figured it out. it was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hey everyone, I'm Ben Lilly, and welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true stories of how science has affected people's lives. This week's story is from Kimberly Ray Miller. The story was recorded in January 2013 at Union Hall in Brooklyn. The theme of the night was Behind the Scenes. Well, I didn't have all that many responsibilities as a young child, but eating Cheerios was one of them. Unfortunately, my overlord parents believed in the ritualistic eating at a table well, I, the free-thinking five-year-old, believed that I could eat at the couch in front of the television, which is where we all know Big Bird lives. And one day, after years, maybe months, maybe weeks, of resentment, I finally harnessed all of the gumption in my five-year-old body and demanded to be able to watch Sesame Street during breakfast. My mom wasn't home. Uh, so I felt pretty safe in asking my dad. But my dad was brave that day. And he said, your mom says you have to eat at the table. At which point I really had no other choice but to start crying. So my father looked at me for a minute. Then he turned around and walked out of the house, leaving me alone in the living room crying. And I cried, and I cried, because I didn't want to not be crying when he came back, because then my cover would be blown. But after about 10 minutes, I realized that I had been orphaned for bad behavior. And I considered calling my mom at work to tell on him, but I couldn't reach the phone on the wall, so I just sat back down and continued to watch television. And after a few more minutes, my father returned, carrying five or six or seven broken mirrors that he must have kept in the garage for some reason. And he said nothing to me, and I said nothing to him because I was pissed. But he meticulously started positioning each of these mirrors against the furniture that separated our kitchen and our living room, fastening each mirror in place with the books and newspapers and shoes and broken radios and yard sale finds and toys that lived in that area. And when he was done, he looked at me and said, sit. And I did, because he sounded serious. And right across from my seat at the table was a mirror that was angled in such a way that it reflected the image of the mirror across from it. And that mirror reflected the image across from that one, and that one across from that one, and that one across from that one, until it got to the mirror that was directly across from the television. Not only could I watch Sesame Street while eating Cheerios, I could watch myself eating Cheerios while watching Sesame Street. <laughs> And I knew in that moment, very 
very definitely two things. One, I had the coolest dad in the entire world. And also that my dad didn't think the way other people think. My dad saw magic in the things that the rest of us think of as garbage, which is kind of common because I didn't know it then, but my dad is a hoarder. And what I knew then was that my dad was really, really messy. And he continued to be messy. And he continued to be brilliant. And by the time I was nine, he'd realized that his messiness, although he couldn't see it, was really affecting his family. And he admitted himself to a mental hospital. But this was the early 90s, and hoarding didn't exist then. And so he was sent home within a week with a prescription for Prozac and told to stop collecting things. And the Prozac didn't last, and neither did his resolution to stop collecting things. And over the years, our house continued to deteriorate, and the things that normal people would get fixed, we couldn't, because we couldn't let repairmen in. And so when the pipes in our ceilings started to rot and flood our downstairs, we just abandoned it. And when our boiler broke my freshman year of high school, we stopped having heat. And we joined a local gym so we could shower once a week. And when I went to go visit friends or have sleepovers, I would accidentally spill something so that I could use their washing machine or take a shower at their house. And when people said they were coming to pick me up, I would walk down the block and stand in front of a very, very normal, nondescript house. And that was my normal until one day, my senior year of high school, I was listening to the news while I was doing my calculus homework, and I heard the reporter saying that she was reporting from a local family home where the people were living in filth. And my heart started racing, and I swore that if I looked at the screen, I would see a news reporter in front of my house. And it took me a minute, but I finally looked, and it wasn't my house, but it could have been, because the shrubs outside were overgrown like ours, meant to hide the house behind them, and the curtains were firmly closed. And the reporter said that the people who live there suffered from a rare obsessive-compulsive disorder called hoarding. And I ran from my room, and I went to my mom, and I said, I know what's wrong with Dad. He has hoarding. And she, I was like, Mom, there are other people like us. Other people live like we do. And she said, Kim, no one lives like this. No one would ever live like this. And so we never talked about it again. That was our normal. And I left home. I, grad I went to college. I moved to Europe. I moved to Los Angeles. I moved to Parksville, Brooklyn. And I created a very, very cookie-cutter life for myself. And every once in a while, I'd go to a party, and someone would mention this new TV show where these people collect stuff. And they are just so disgusting. And I would think to myself, I will never tell anyone that I am one of those people. And then something happened. A couple of years ago, my mom almost died. She needed multiple surgeries to save her life. And after the first surgery, she was sent home with a gaping wound in her abdomen. And it needed to stay open because it needed to drain. And all I could think was that my mother was going to go home and live in garbage until she died of sepsis. And so I did the one thing that I swore I would never do. I told people. I told as many people as I could, and I asked them if they would come, and they would help me clean my parents' house so that my mom wouldn't die. And people are amazing. And they drove in from other states. They hired cleaning women. They brought pizza and music and their own rubber gloves. And they spent two days cleaning my family home so it would be a safe place for my, my mom to live. 
And my dad stood there and I said, Dad, please just don't fuck it up. And he said, I'll try kiddo. And something broke in me. I had to stop pretending that my life was normal. And in that, I decided to research hoarding. I decided to become an expert in hoarding and then I was going to cure my dad. And the thing about my dad, like many hoarders, he hoards in a theme and my dad is a brilliant man and he's an information hoarder and so he has never met a piece of paper, a book, a notebook, a magazine that he didn't love. And so I thought this was going to be the best family research project ever. Let's fix dad. And so I bought psychology books, and I found brain scans, and I found case studies, and I got them for me, and I got them for my parents. And every week, I would call home with my newest find, and I would say, Dad, did you know that there's a marker on the 14th chromosome? Hoarding is genetic. And he'd say, okay, so did you ever convert that 403B into an IRA? And I'd be frustrated, but I would go back and I would just spend my days poring over these research books. And I would call and I would say, Dad, they couldn't fix you at the mental hospital because hoarders don't respond to cognitive therapy. They actually respond better to behavioral therapy. And he'd say, okay, so what do you think I should get your mom for her birthday? And one day, I found like I really, really figured it out. I figured out why my dad was a hoarder, because he had never told me this, but I'd figured it out through the family whispers that my dad's parents were abusive alcoholics who had died when he was very young. And I'd, I'd found a study that said alcoholics, uh, children of alcoholics are four times more likely to become hoarders than the rest of the population. And so I called my dad with my news and he said, well, does that make me eight times more likely since both of my parents were Alkies? And I said, yeah. And he said, okay, well, why don't you talk to your mom, kiddo? And I said, mom, I just don't get it. Dad loves information more than anybody I have ever met. And she said, honey, your dad doesn't want to go through life thinking he's crazy. And I was like, why? But I stopped. And then along the way, I continued my research, but I had to get a job because, you know, I had rent to pay. And so on my first day of work, my father called me. And he wanted to see how I was doing. And I said, you know, Dan, I, I'm still kind of shy. And I was a really, really shy child. I had a, I, my school actually had to assign someone to speak aloud for me because I couldn't speak above a whisper. And my dad said, you know, I was a lot like you. I was really shy, and I said, I don't believe you. My dad looks like Santa Claus. And uh, he said, yeah, you know, I had a lot to hide at home. I didn't want anyone to notice me. And in that moment, I knew that I understood my dad better than I ever thought I did. And I said, that that's how I felt. And he laughed, and he said, well, let's change the pattern for your kids. And in the years since, my parents have moved to a new house, a very clean house. They have a cleaning lady. And my father has started his own research project. He has been looking for a behavioral therapist because hoarders do not respond to cognitive therapy. And in the meantime, he is also hiding bags of paper in places he thinks my mother won't find them. <laughs> because you know what they say about knowing. It's only half the battle. Thank you.
That was Kimberly Ray Miller. Kim is a writer living in New York City. She's written for Yahoo's Shine, Figure Magazine, and contributed to CBS Radio, CBS New York. In 2010, Kim was featured in Catherine Cease's career guide, Creative Girl. She blogs at thekimchallenge.com. Her memoir, Coming Clean, comes out Tuesday, July 23rd. For more science stories, take a look at storycollider.org, where we have archives of the podcast and upcoming events. Our next shows are July 23rd in New York and August 27th in Boston. The Story Collider is produced by me, Brian Wecht, Aaron Barker, and Ari Daniel Shapiro. The podcast is produced by Rose Eveleth. Additional help from Brooke Williams, Lena Groger, and Justin D'Ambrosio. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to Union Hall for hosting the show and to Weather Reports for enabling my addiction to not going outside. Thanks for listening. <laughs>